You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. I just want to share some thoughts on um, this past week, past week and a half or so, after hearing the Chauvin verdict, even, even some thoughts before the verdict came out. It was a very intense last couple of weeks. I tried to pay attention as much as I could, as much as I could handle to the, the trial. But I just want to share some thoughts since the verdict came in. And some of these sentiments I, I've heard I share with those that have shared on, on television or on social media. But I have a couple of questions I, I ask myself. Number one, why do we as black people have to hold our collective breath for justice? That was one of the first thoughts I had. This may have been the most obvious outcome I've ever seen for a trial. The videos captured everything. The witnesses were compelling and convincing. Yet many black people still sat in our homes and thought that there was the real possibility of a guilty verdict, a not guilty verdict. Because that's what history has taught us. Justice can be elusive for anyone or any group, but it is especially the case for African-Americans. We need look no further than the trials following Philando Castile's murder, Trayvon Martin's murder, Rodney King's beating, Emmett Till's murder, and the countless black victims of lynchings in the U.S. dating back to the 19th century. If we go back to slavery, post-slavery, not to forget Breonna Taylor, although there was no video, the evidence from most in my community's perspective was clear that this young lady was murdered while she slept in her own bed. On one hand, we would likely not have gotten a guilty verdict if it were not for the video on Darnella Frazier's phone. This courageous young girl decided to record what she saw. She could have been afraid and nervous and walked away. She could have just been talking and, and not pulled her phone out, but she documented this. It's unfortunate because it's as if our own testimonies are never enough. I say this because we're still, we're, we were holding our collective breath for justice because this is what happens. Our testimonies are never enough. We aren't afforded the benefit of the doubt like our white counterparts. And that's not just my opinion, but that's fact. And let me clarify, I'm not saying we never get justice. I'm not saying we, we, we always have to do this. I'm saying, generally speaking, this is the case. I've had conversations with white friends and strangers alike about how often they have gotten away with a warning for breaking the law, whether it's selling drugs or, or something of that nature. We can watch countless, almost comical videos of white people fighting police officers, stealing their cars, having weapons, and, and, and they don't get shot. Running into police officers' cars, chasing after police officers at times, and they don't get shot. And again, I'm not saying white people don't get shot at all by law enforcement ever. 
But I'm saying at the rate at which this occurs in their community is nothing compared to the rate at which it occurs in the African-American community, where we only make up 12% of the population. And white folks make up 60% of the population. Not to mention the treatment that we often receive that do not lead to death or beatings. And I'm talking about abusive authority, the way you're spoken to, the way you're looked at. I mean, I have countless stories. I have my share of stories, and I shouldn't have to say that. I shouldn't have to say that I have stories, plural, of these encounters. I have mo probably most of my friends have similar stories. And those things can be just as, uh, can cause just as much injury if you, if you experience it over and over and over again, and not so much the individual, but the community, if the community experiences something over and over again, from the most blatant to the most subtle, it all carries weight eventually, the same weight. And I say this as someone who's got good friends in law enforcement. One of my best friends is in law enforcement. I've mentored um, young men in, in law enforcement. And so when we talk about this, you know, we, we got to remember we're not talking about every single police officer or um, just uh, police officers. We're talking about policing in actuality. We're talking about this culture of policing that goes all the way back. I, people still talk about going back to the slave patrols. We can go back to the overseer on the plantation. Their job was to watch over slaves, to make sure they were working, to inflict punishment when they weren't. They, got dis they were disrespectful. They tried to escape. And out of that culture came law enforcement. And, and we got to get people to understand we're still experiencing this. The camera... Man, the camera has been indispensable for the cause of justice for black folks, dating back to the civil rights movement when Dr. King was strategic in capturing white violence in the South for the nation and the world to witness. I'm writing, a, I wrote a paper three years ago on this, on how vital the camera has been. Had it not been for the cameras, I'm not sure the civil rights movement would have been as successful. Because once those images were projected across the nation, across the world, and people actually saw, it began to, to deal with their conscience, the collective conscience of the nation. And so you can't turn away from those images. You can't unsee those images. But then on the other hand, the content on the camera records, documents, it also reminds us of the trauma we experience in this country. They're hard to watch. The videos are triggering. And it's a shame that we have to rely on an extra eyewitness so often to get justice. And so on one hand, we need the camera to strengthen our witness, our testimony to prove, see, this is actually happening. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't, um, it just happened. It wasn't, I wasn't a threat. Like this happened. And we're not talking about law enforcement. We're talking about just dealing with racism in general. Ahmaud Arbery comes to mind. 
Trayvon Martin. We didn't have a video for Trayvon, but we had the audio. And in my opinion, the audio was just as strong as the video. And so while we need the camera, on the, on the flip side, those images are traumatic. It's hard to watch, hard to see. And so I asked a second question. For the same reasons I mentioned above, I mentioned before. Why do we celebrate what should have been the expected outcome? So number one, why do we have to hold our breath leading up to the verdict? People were actually nervous, thinking this may, this may be a not guilty verdict. And then the second question I asked myself is, why do we have to celebrate as if this was the goal? Like this was what, what was expected. And here's why. Because the outcome of justice for us is never certain. I was pleased and I rejoiced because the Floyd family rejoiced. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's verse 26, thinking offhand, verse 26, that tells us, I'm paraphrasing a bit, to rejoice when other members of the body rejoice, when, they're, uh, when, when, they're, when, they, when they rejoice. But it also says to mourn or to grieve when others suffer. So just as I grieved with them a year ago, almost a year ago after seeing the video, I can certainly rejoice with them now. But while I was rejoicing, while I was glad for the, for the verdict, because they were glad, they needed that. Really, the, 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 we all needed that, not just black folks. The country needed that. Whether there are people who didn't think so or not, we needed that. But while I was rejoicing, I was also exhausted and relieved. Like it was a sigh of relief. And I just kind of sat. And then I asked a question. I asked another question. What next? This is but one verdict. There are countless verdicts to come. Ahmaud Arbery's case uh, trial comes to mind. The trial for the people who killed him comes to mind. We all know what happened with Breonna Taylor's case. I'm unsure of what will happen with Dante Wright's killing and Makia Bryant's shooting. And although these are not the same circumstances as George Floyd, there's something bigger that we must think about. There's something deeper that the African-American community grieves even beyond the individual shooting deaths of our people. And it's this question I, 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 I pose is, what would this have happened if those people were white? And would there be any doubt as to what would happen to the perpetrators? Is the gun going to be drawn as quickly and the trigger pulled as quickly if any of these people were white? And again, I'm not saying this never happens in the white community. I'm saying not to the same rate that it does in the black and brown community. And so we have to think about this, this, this bigger issue is the care and nurture that's given to white bodies that's far too absent in our community, 
It's as simple as that. This care and nurturing, this thinking twice before pulling the trigger. And it could be something as simple as, you know, an officer sees himself in that person. He sees his daughter, sees his father, brother, mom or something in that person. And when they see black bodies, they don't see themselves. They see an other. But history says they see less than an other. It could be that. It's bigger, there's a bigger issue at hand than the details of each incident that people seem to want to have intellectual, non-empathetic debates about. Like what happened here and, and want to parse every situation. But they forget the fact that there's a dead body. There's a mother grieving. There's a father grieving. There's a child without their, their mother, father, sister There's a, there's a caring for, a valuing, and a preserving. Um, these things need to happen for black bodies and black lives, just like white lives. And if we expand this, we can look at history and we can look at even current events. If we expand this, we can include and talk about Latinx bodies, Asian bodies, indigenous bodies, Muslim bodies, and the bodies of all ethnic groups, Jewish bodies that do not get treated with the same care as white bodies. This is not just about law enforcement, but it's about whiteness and the white community in general, especially those who are silent or indifferent or even who, who, who think that we're just crazy for talking about this stuff. I'm not talking about every white person, but the culture and ideology of whiteness as is lived out among the white community. You know, I begin to think about how in so many cases, work, school, etc., how black bodies are not safe. And it's not that we experience the threat of death in these spaces necessarily, but it's a different type of violence. The violence is to our identity, our worth, our health, physical and mental well-being I'm talking about our gifts and talents, and even our potential. There's a violence that happens there. And wherever there are power dynamics at play, there will likely be some form of violence, something that injures, that imposes upon another by those in power. And when we talk about racism, when we talk about white supremacy or whiteness, there's always going to be this inequity when it comes to power. And when, you in, when you're black and you enter into these spaces, you're aware of the fact that you can be injured today. You're aware of this violence. I had a conversation with a young lady, uh, a Latina, today. And she talked about how she never really, she, she had dismissed or set aside her own cultural identity. And she thought that's what she was supposed to do, especially as a Christian woman. Like, God doesn't really care about that. And she's come to this space, this place now where she's like, no, I, that's a part of who I am. And so now she's embracing it and she's hearing the messages and she's, she's, she's following those who are, who are preaching and teaching from those perspectives as well. And so there, there's been a violence 
that's occurred with her and her identity. Where she literally set aside her identity, who she, who she is. Like it's not important. And I know people who make those efforts to sound white, to speak white, to dress white, to, uh, to and, and there's this, this, this adoration for whiteness at the expense of their own cultural identity. And no, we don't have a camera for every time we have these experiences or these conversations, these microaggressions that build up. Remember I talked about how even the most subtle things can build up over time and seem to carry the same weight as one blatant act. But we can't and shouldn't have to have a camera in every space in order to capture the experiences just so people can believe us. I spoke earlier about holding our collective breath, waiting for a guilty verdict. I'm reminded of how our existence, figuratively speaking, but with real implications to health and well-being, our existence is holding our breaths. Dr. Dawn Henderson reminded me once that breathing is activism for black people. Because we were never taught how to breathe, she says. In other words, I'm reminded also of uh, James Baldwin when he talks about to be black is to, to be, I'm maybe paraphrasing a bit, to be black is to be in a constant state of rage. If you're in a constant state of, of rage, you're not breathing well. And sure, he's not talking about 24 hours a day, but it is a regular part of our being to be in that space is what he's saying. And if that's true, you're not, we're not breathing well. We're taught to be alert. We're taught to be on guard. And you can't do both. You can't do that and breathe well. And so we live on this edge in this liminal space. I love that word, liminal space, this in-between space. The space of the unknown and the uncertain. We live in the waiting. As the old church would, would say, we tarry. And while we wait with prayer and worship for people of faith, as people of faith, we also wait in the midst of a stressful, hostile space that is unhealthy and toxic, and we can't afford to keep doing that. So yes, I wait with prayer, I wait with worship, worship, and I trust God, but I also have to recognize those spaces, that, that, that waiting in the midst of stress and traumatic experiences, the microaggressions, that hostile space is unhealthy and toxic for me. And I don't have to stay in that place. I shouldn't have to. But this waiting or this liminal space is undiscerned, unseen, or unbelieved by many of my white friends. I'm talking about those who aren't the allies on the front lines of this cause for justice. Many of them get it. They see it. But a lot don't. Many don't. You know, some people, even some black folks, will refer to this, what I'm talking about, as playing the victim. And I'm going to tell you, that's nothing more than a tactic to minimize and dismiss one's trauma and lived experience. There's some people who do live as victims. But to tell your stories and to acknowledge the truth of your experience is not victimhood. 
That's a trick of those in power who want to silence your voice and not hear you out or be challenged by their complicity in your trauma. And you can't call it victim because where there's, a, where there's trauma, there's resiliency. Some people just don't have the skills to tap into the resources of resiliency. But in this waiting, in this liminal space, there's built-in resilience that the black community has. If you don't believe me, go do a quick survey of history. I think about Hagar Toomer. She is, if I do the right calculation, she's my five, maybe six times great-grandmother. I think five times great-grandmother. A mulatto slave, born in 1803, died in 1865. 66, I'm sorry, 1866. Experienced one year of freedom. Tell me that's not resiliency. A life filled with trauma from being enslaved. But tell me that's not resiliency. Because of the resiliency of those who lived through 246 years of enslavement and those who lived through the Jim Crow era, because of that resiliency, I exist. Because it was intended for us to be enslaved in perpetuity. It was intended that we would be segregated from here on out. That was the goal. And so where we, when we speak of trauma and stress, you can't call it victimhood because you have to acknowledge the resiliency that's there too. I draw from my friend Elaine Miller-Karras of Trauma Resource Institute when I define resiliency. And she defines it as, I'm paraphrasing her, I'm shortening her definition and paraphrasing a bit, but this is the essence of her definition. The ability to identify and use individual and collective strengths to thrive while managing the activities of daily living. Let me say it again. The ability to identify and use individual and collective strengths in order to, to thrive while managing the activities of daily living. And so if we can help people identify and use the strengths, the resources that are available to them. And, and oftentimes, people are already tapping into those resources. They just don't have the language. They just don't know how to name it. But in order to survive, many people, and, and even thrive, many people are tapping into those, those resources. And I would say some tap into those resources in order to, to survive. But we got to help people tap into the resources, the strengths that are available to them so that they can thrive while navigating the stresses and the trauma and the toxicity oftentimes that we have to experience, particularly as black folks. I watched as on the news, on, on television, as people were crying and cheering at the same time. They were crying because of the verdict came out. They were cheering as well. And I began to think about how often have we had to do that? How often had, have our people had to both cry and cheer at the same time? Only to find the next generation experiences another iteration of what they did generation before. So the verdict gave us a chance to take a breath. 
but there is more that we need to look out for to confirm if things are really changing in our culture. So what needs to happen? I think something simple needs to happen. Everyone wants to do the work. What do we do? What do we do? What's the, what's the work to cause change? Everyone wants to, to go out and do something, but there's some soul work. There's some inner work that needs to happen. I may have shared this in a, in a previous podcast. I'm not sure, but I'll say it again. I think it's worth saying again. I believe the information and the testimonies are readily accessible for people who actually want to know the truth. What happened to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, as we watched on videos, as well as others that we've seen on videos and those who we didn't capture on videos, these things have happened to black folks over the years. This is nothing new. It's just being exposed. Some people are just being exposed to this this past year and already they want to do something to change things. And I think there's some inner work that needs to happen. People need to know the truth. But people have to be willing to think critically about their own beliefs and perspectives, their own theologies included. There are some people that need to rethink what the gospel means to them. Because if they're not including justice in the gospel, as a core part of the gospel, not just sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to get people saved and get baptized and you cheer that on and you on to the next person. But if you don't see that the gospel should be relevant to the particularities of our, of our society, the particular issue that we deal with, you won't get it. You won't cause the change. And that's not something that we can make people do. That's something people have to want to do. They need to understand that their perspectives are not the only ones. Ideology is powerful. We have allegiances to ideology that is stronger than our commitment to doing what's right. And we can continue to address the symptoms. In other words, the ways racism manifests itself. Or people can look within their souls and I would say entire communities, institutions, and even corporations need to look within their souls and see just how much of themselves are anchored in whiteness, which is the root cause of racism. And you don't have to be white to embrace or embody whiteness. Start there with the soul work. And hopefully this verdict is a turning point in both law enforcement and the broader society that we experienced something together. We saw a video together. We watched a trial together. We sat at home and we paused for a year because of the pandemic together. Hopefully this is a turning point. If otherwise, we will have wasted this time. Because this is not just about law enforcement. Law enforcement just happens to be where we see some of the most egregious acts of bigotry, bias, and abuse of authority toward African Americans. But racism and its undergirding ideology or worldview called whiteness is the cancer of our whole society. And I know there's some people who may listen to this, uh, white folks, and get offended by that. And I would suggest at some point, go back and listen to the previous couple of podcasts. There's a disentangling of your identity with whiteness that you're going to have to go through, a process you're going to have to go through. 
so that you can talk truthfully about white supremacy, whiteness, and, and still be secure in who you are. That's not my job. That's your job. But this thing touches every aspect. It touches every group of color, including white folks. No one is untouched by whiteness and the forms or the iterations of racism it produces. We will not be changed as a nation until we reckon with this. And I want to end it there. Before I go, let me remind you of my own book, Open Wounds on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com or in Barnes & Noble stores. You can check with Barnes & Noble in your area and see if they have the books in stock. I think this book is a great resource for this discussion on racism. Not, I'm not just promoting it because it's my book, partly it, but I'm promoting it because I think I believe it is a valuable resource. I've gotten great feedback from people who have delved into it, but it's a valuable resource for this discussion, I believe. And you can also watch the short film Open Wounds by going to www.openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com, and you can rent it on demand. Thank you for listening and parking with me at the intersections. <laughs>